Well, this year is the year of the good news. The good news is the gospel announcement that Jesus has come, Jesus has died, and Jesus has rose again. Can anybody give God a big hand that because he lives, we live also. We're going to continue this morning our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. As you know, uh, this year we're taking the four gospels and we're going to uh, dive in and spend some time in every one of those. Uh, as a companion to that, I do, I do want to let you know that uh, on Wednesday nights, starting in May, we've decided to take the book of Acts and just kind of plot through that. And so this uh, Wednesday night at 7 p.m. over in the Gap Room, we're going to do some team teaching. I'm going to start it off uh, this Wednesday night at 7 uh, with Acts chapter 1. And we're going to have uh, uh, Scott Ross and uh, Pastor Tom Allen also kind of uh, jumping in there for some uh, sequential weeks. And we're going to do this uh, here throughout the next couple of months, probably take a break in July and then get back at it in the fall. So uh, join us on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. We also are relaunching our Catalyst Youth at 7 p.m., uh, also here uh, midweek. So that starts this week. Give God a hand for that. He is good. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. Today, I want us to begin looking at nine points of what it means to be blessed. Just tell your neighbor, I want to be blessed. Nine points of what it means to be blessed. And the word used in the Greek for blessed is makarios. Makarios has three different ways that it's defined. Number one is means incredibly fortunate. I want to be incredibly fortunate, don't you? I mean, good fortune, that, yeah, let's, let's be fortunate. It also means favored in the Greek. But the one I really want to focus on is God-like. So when Jesus talks to us about these Beatitudes, now, if you're like me, the Beatitudes are something that I've read for many years, I've kind of glossed over them, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, yeah, I can get all that, but there's not a lot of context to them, and there's not a lot of teaching surrounding them, and so it's easy to just go a little further and, and just go on, but Jesus, when he said this word blessed, he's saying God-like are those, and I don't know about you, but in my Christian endeavor, there is something that compels me to be like God. I want to be like God. I will never be and reach that attainment uh, to be God. Obviously, we know there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord, is one. That is the Shema. That is known by, by all Jewish historians and Christians alike. We know that there's only one God, but we can imitate, we can emulate, and we can be the, the representatives and be like God. So the Sermon on the Mount is where we're going to be over the next couple of months. And the Sermon on the Mount is recorded the longest teaching of Jesus. There are three chapters that make up the Sermon on the Mount, 110 verses. And so that means it's not something easily digestible in one setting. You can read all three chapters easily, but to truly get the meat and the crux of what it is, you have to revisit it time and time again. And here's what I found about found out in my life is this. Due to the season that I'm in, due to the, the situations that are surrounding me, I may hear the word of God differently today than I did five years ago. I may be able to absorb something of the teachings of Jesus today that I wasn't able to absorb two years ago. Something may be happening in my life right now that I'm able to process and correlate the teachings of Jesus differently than I used to. And so we have to revisit this sermon 
all the time. And many times the word of God comes to us and it's kind of like the adage, hear me now, listen later. Hear me now, listen later. You can process it later. Or as someone else said, you can learn it now or you can feel it later. It's up to you what you want to do. So Jesus uses this setting not only to teach, but also to invite us into the blessed life, the way of life that will mold us into Christ-likeness, to be like Christ. Here it is, Matthew 5. I just want to read three verses. It says, And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Also, the gospel writer Luke gives us a picture of this same sermon, and he says it like this. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Now, Matthew elaborates a little bit more than poor. He says poor in spirit. So let's break this down a minute. Jesus first saw the multitude. There was something that stirred on the inside of him when he saw the multitude. There was a compassion. There was a, a desire to teach. There was a love. There was, there was a, a feeling that they needed to be trained. They were like sheep not having a shepherd. And so Jesus saw the multitude. And here's what I want you to know is that Jesus still sees people today. Jesus sees you right now, right where you are. Jesus sees you in your circumstance. Jesus sees you in your plight. Jesus sees you in your delight. Jesus has his eyes open and he's looking to and fro throughout all the earth for those who will show themselves to incline their heart unto God. So Jesus saw this multitude. And when he did, he sat down to teach. Now, this is interesting to me because a seated position and posture is one of authority. It's one that a teacher takes on to say, okay, now class is in session. I have something that I want to relay to you, and I don't need to be all flashy and glam about it. You need to get this. Are you taking notes? That's what Jesus said. He sat down. And, and the, interestingly, here's what the Bible tells us that Jesus opened his mouth to teach them. Why does it have to say that he opened his mouth to teach them? Isn't that how you usually teach, is you open your mouth to speak? I think it indicates that speaking is not the only form of teaching. There is also a very real process of learning that comes through emulation, that comes through demonstration, that comes from apprenticing with Jesus. Come along and see what I do and then do as I say. Do as I do. Many of us were raised in homes where we were told, do as I say, not as I do. And we realized later on that your actions speak very loudly and what you do will be a real training for your children and for people who are watching you. But Jesus, in this case, sat down and opened his mouth to teach them. There was something that had to be transmitted one to the other. Now, as we look at these two different uh, gospel writers here, we know that we're going to be talking about the poor, but what kind of poor? In no way is Jesus glamorizing poverty, those who are financially poor. I cannot think of anything good that can come out of someone being in poverty, someone being in the place in which they don't even have enough food for the day. There's nothing good that I can see in our world that comes out of that condition. But Jesus cleverly compares something that is undesirable 
to something that is most desirable. And I think the reason that Jesus makes this contrast in his initial teaching is because it helps us as the readers, it helps us as the learners to go beyond the surface, to go beyond just a cursory reading of the text and say, okay, what does this really mean for my life? John Stott, the great theologian, said this, the standards of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, are neither readily attainable by everyone nor totally unattainable by anyone. So in other words, what he's saying is, you're not just going to stumble over this and be like, oh, okay, I got it. No, this is going to be something that is sought after, something that is desired. If you're going to truly learn what it means to be poor in spirit so that yours can be the kingdom of heaven, then what he's saying is, no one is excluded. Everyone can be included in this, but it's not easily attainable. It is something that you're going to have to press in for, something that you're going to have to desire. And Jesus opens up this teaching with great care and compassion as he talks to us about the blessed life. So I already shared with you that blessed, we're going to look at, means godlike or godly. Let's say maybe godly. And the poor, so there's two, two concepts here. Poor financially means that your needs exceed your ability to provide. When you're poor, that means what you need, you have sustenance needs of, exceed what you can actually secure. So those who are poor in spirit, follow me, those who are poor in spirit have no refuge but God. In other words, when you're poor in spirit, you are unable in and of yourself to attain to the level of fulfilling that God-shaped hole on the inside of you. You recognize that you cannot do for you all that needs to be done for you. And so therefore, we have to look outside of ourselves. See, our God is both transcendent, far away, and he's also imminent, close. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is both removed from all of the inner workings and, and the, the situations of this world, and yet he is intimately acquainted with the needs and the burdens and the cares of humanity. How is it? Well, to be poor in spirit means that we have no refuge but God. We cannot solve our own problems in and of ourselves. But then he, he ends this one beatitude with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'll notice that Matthew and other writers will interchangeably use the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. It, it is basically this, where God has direct rule. Anywhere there is a kingdom, it means that the king has direct authority over that dominion, over that domain. And so if yours is the kingdom of heaven, yours is the kingdom of God, it means that's where God's direct rule and authority are. Here, here's the thing that we have to understand as we walk through and we read the scriptures is that we have and we are walking in an inaugurated kingdom of God that has not yet been consummated as the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? Is, there's this tension between already something being launched and in process and yet not having been fulfilled completely at the end day. And so we live in this middle ground. We live in this in-between, this already and not yet. See, in our country, when we inaugurate, every four years, we inaugurate a president. That doesn't end their term. It only begins their time. And so when Jesus came announcing the kingdom and he punctuated it by raising on the third day, just like he said, he has announced and inaugurated his kingdom. 
His kingdom is available and present and living and available for everyone who wants to participate in it. As Dallas Willard once said, the kingdom of God is the present availability of God's rule to everyone who will enter and participate with it. See, there is an activity of our will if we're going to be part of this, of this blessed life, these Beatitudes. If you're taking notes, the key instruction for this first Beatitude is simply trust. Just say trust. The key takeaway to this first Beatitude is trust. Your obedience to God is directly related to the depth of your trust in God. If you're going to be poor in spirit, if you're going to acknowledge that you have nothing by which you can bring to the table, then you have to have this deep reliance in trusting God. Trust is really the crux of what got all of us in this problem to begin with. This problem I'm talking about is this sin problem. Adam and Eve did not truly and fully trust what God said because when the tempter came and said, did God really say, they knew most of what God said. They could even rehearse it back to him, but there was something that caused them not to obey because there was a chink in their trust armor. And many of us as adults, we have trust issues. And why do we have trust issues? Because people have let us down before. And because we can't see God with our natural eye, we will compare our life experiences, our journey through this life to how God would respond because that's how people have responded. So our trust issues are directly related to how we've been let down, how we've been set back how we've been lied to, we've been cheated, we've been stolen from. Our trust is related to how our feelings have processed our life experience. But if I were to rewrite this beatitude, if I were just to put it in in my own vernacular, here's how I would rewrite it. Here it is. Godlike are those whose spiritual need exceeds their ability to provide for themselves by themselves who have learned to depend entirely on God. This kind of person is in the right posture for God's direct rule over their life. I wanna talk about posture for just a moment. Most of you in this room right now are in a posture of sitting. You are seated, you're comfortably seated in a posture of relaxing, of sitting, of listening. You're attentive, you're, you're, you're tuned in, you're dialed in to what's being said, what's being spoken. And those who realize spiritually that they cannot provide for themselves, who are poor in spirit, are in a posture, in a, in a heart posture, I would say, to receive from the Lord. But how did Jesus model this poor in spirit? Remember, the only kind of uh, the, the teaching, uh, verbal words are not the only kind of teaching. And so there's many ways that Jesus modeled this. Here they had a 30-year-old man sitting in front of them who was wise Jesus was astute. He was interesting to listen to. He was popular beyond the belief, even to the point of attracting the largest crowds of the day. What possibly could this man know about poverty? What possibly could this famous teacher, this sage of all the ages know about being poor? And often we miss the point because we judge the book by the cover. We look at the outside. We look at the exterior of Jesus and and all of the trappings of his success in earthly ministry and think, well, he can't know anything about that. 
We look at the teachers in our lives or we size up people and we take a snapshot of them and we judge the book by the cover. We don't often know the back history. We don't know the story behind the story. Let me share with you how Jesus modeled for us what it meant to be poor in spirit. First of all, the king of glory left his glory above to come and incarnate and be like one of us. He did not count it as robbery to be equal with God. He humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself and took on the model of a servant. He was born to poor parents. An underage, unwed at the moment mother. He fled his homeland at a very young age and was on the run from a ruler. Jesus grew up with a real normal existence. He wasn't wildly wealthy or successful in his formative years. He was pretty much well-adjusted. So he was poor by world standards. Jesus was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was beaten. He was lied about. He was hung on a cross and he was murdered. So Jesus modeled for us what it means to be poor in spirit, to open up your life to let whatever would to happen. That's how Jesus modeled it. And most of us need to have a change in our posture if we're going to be poor in spirit. And I'm not talking about standing up from where you're seated. I'm talking about a change in your heart in your life posture. And here's how we're gonna demonstrate that today. I just want you to make a closed fist, or you can make two of them, just a closed fist. All right, this is a posture. I have a closed fist is a posture. Or if you just simply open up your hands, that's also a posture. You see, tight-fisted living is not trusting. Tight-fisted living means that we are demonstrating holding on because we have a fear of losing. Something must stay in our life. We don't want to let go of it. We have a fear of losing. A closed fist indicates a scarcity mentality. I may run out. There may not be enough. If I let this go, then something else may not come into my life. You can see this in children on a playground. You you, you throw out one ball, and and they'll kind of play with it, but you throw out two balls, and now one of them wants both balls. You throw out three balls, and the same kid wants to grab all three of them, don't they? They have a closed-fisted mentality, a scarcity mentality. And we can learn this not only from children, but also from our own lives. So often we try to hold on to things which God is wanting us to release out of our hands, and God won't pry it out of your hands. But if you will open up your hands, if you will change your posture to an open-handed posture, it indicates a heart of expectation. Open-handed posture is a heart of expectation. Many of you have been down to Cincinnati to a ball game or, or maybe just to shop in the area, and, and you notice that in inner cities, in, in bigger cities, there are people who are begging. They're, they're on the roadside, and they have a sign, and they're begging, and, and most of them are, are just really kind of quiet, and they just sit there, and, and they just wait. But if you will go up with a dollar bill to one of those beggars, do they reach out a closed fist like this to you? A closed fist means let's fight. I mean, if I, was reaching, if I was going to go up to a beggar and they had their fist up, I'm going to go on to somebody else, right? Because a closed fist means I'm not ready to receive. No, no, no. Every beggar, if you go up and you look like you're going to give them something, they start to expectantly change their posture to an open hand. 
to an open hand. And Jesus is illustrating for us, blessed are the poor. He uses this word poor, which is repulsive to us. But it's an undesirable to obtain the most desirable. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who open up their hands with a posture to receive, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Open hands can also do two things. It can let something out, but it also lets something in. And there are some things in our lives that we have held on to for far too long. There are some things in our lives that if we would just loosen the grasp a little bit, then God would allow it to flush out of our lives. And what happens is when something leaves our lives by the hand of God, something else greater comes into our lives by the blessing of God. There are some things that need to exit your life so that God can pour fresh oil and fresh water back in. Come on, today somebody needs to receive a blessing from God and you need to do it with an open-handed posture with a heart expectant to receive from the Lord. He is a good, good father. And he wants to give gifts to his children. He wants to give to us everything that pertains to life and to godliness. Open hands are also a sign of generosity. It's a sign of kindness. When you greet somebody, I did it multiple times here this morning before church started, is, is that I greeted some people. And actually, if, if they were younger, I would greet them with a closed fist because here's what the young generation like to do. They like to fist bump. It's okay to fist bump, but you know what happens every time after I fist bump, I open it up. I open it every time. I mean, you say, pastor, that's, that's corny. I don't care. I don't want to just have a closed fist mentality. We can fist bump, but let's open it up. And others of you from my generation or beyond, we handshake, don't we? We still shake hands. I know Dr. CDC says you shouldn't be shaking hands, but I, listen, around here we shake hands and I'll even hug your neck too. That's okay. That's okay. Now, we're not going to get real biblical about this because I ain't greeting nobody with a holy kiss except my wife. All right, sorry. <laughs> so if you want to go all Bible on me, you can do that, but you're not getting it from me. We'll still fist bump handshake. But we need to change our posture and not only hold on, we need to let go. Being poor in spirit means this, to admit my need. Being poor in spirit means that in this life, there are a few basic needs. There are some material needs like food, shelter, clothing. You know, it has always been the priority of the local church to help those who are in need of food, of shelter, and of clothing. It was never the government's job. They took it over years ago. They levied taxes on us. And so by and large, in Western culture, we have allowed the government to do the things with the church has always been called to do. I'll just give a little shout out to Kelly Fitzgerald and our Faith Promise family, Faith Promise team. Kelly's teaching a class right now in the kids' church, but you're gonna leave out of here today and you're gonna see there's some carts in the lobby and it looks very unkept and unruly with food overflowing from that. And that is because there are people in this local body that when they got the phone call that, hey, we're gonna be hosting families four times a year and, and we're going to be uh, helping those who are in transitional need of housing and we're gonna be feeding them and giving them some opportunity to hear the gospel and the love of Jesus all week long, we, we get to 
sponsor a family, a group of family for a week, is that you have responded with open hearts and open hands to bring in some food items, some things which are needed. Thank God for people who still have generosity to give. And so many of you who are involved in that ministry, we've been doing it for 15 years now, and it is a blessing to, to be able to give back. And it's, you know what, it's, it's a blessing to be able to give to someone who cannot ever repay you. At, at, at Christmas time around family, uh, you know, gatherings, we give gifts and we receive gifts. But there is something about being able to give when you have no expectation of getting it in return from them. And that's what you do during the Family Promise Week. Take care of basic needs. There are some basic needs, but being poor in spirit, there is something that each of us needs spiritually. And it's not just that we need this one time. We come to the altar, we say, you know, our, our salvation prayer, whatever that is. I've never been able to find that in the Bible, by the way. There's no specific salvation prayer. Did you pray the prayer of salvation? I, I, I couldn't find it. Here's what we need. We need love. Spiritually, we need acceptance. We need community. We need forgiveness. That comes through repentance of sin. Some people, they think that they took care of that years ago when they walked to the altar. Every single day in your life, there is, a, there, there is a departure from spiritual disciplines. We don't like the word discipline in any facet or form in our culture, but there is a departure from spiritual dif- disciplines in our day. Spiritual disciplines are these, like confession. You confess your faults one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person has much mileage. It avails much. Don't think just because you asked for forgiveness 15 years ago when you walked to the altar or 50 years ago that you, you settled it all right there. There's been some moments in time where you've done something that you need to come back and say, ah, Lord, I, forgive me for that. I'm sorry. And sometimes you need to make restitution to somebody whom you offended as well. Amen. Spiritual disciplines, prayer, communing with God. Spiritual disciplines, absorbing the word of God, getting his word in me and me in his word. These are some things that we all have need of. We all have need spiritually of knowing that we are loved, that that God accepts us just as we are, but loves us so much never to let us stay that way. We are a work in progress. We are all the time being transformed into his image. Now, why is it? I beg ask you, why is it so difficult for us to admit that we need something. We'd rather do it ourselves, right? Our culture apprises very highly independence, not dependence. And that can be good if you're looking for a job. That can be good if you're trying to be responsible and raise your family. But it is not good in the kingdom of God with a posture of pleasing God in a poor spirit because you cannot be independent in this thing. You have to be utterly dependent upon God. Why is it so hard for us to admit we have a need? Because it makes us vulnerable. We don't like vulnerability. It makes us feel weak. We look exposed. Someone may see a flaw. 
Listen, you don't have to look very far to find a flaw in me. Come on now. Someone already sees your flaws. In fact, your spouse knows your blind side better than anybody. You ask a friend and they can point out to you a thing or two that you could change, you could modify. But being blessed, being godly or godlike is countercultural because it admits that you have a need. Here's what I want to announce to you today is that freedom comes to those who are poor in spirit. Freedom comes to those who are poor in spirit. When I say poor, most of us think financially and we think, I don't want that. I don't want to be poor. Maybe you've been poor. By the world standards, I was poor. By American standards, yes, but in the scope of humanity, no, I wasn't poor. Growing up, I wasn't that bad off. We resist poor because we don't want to be associated with needy or dependent. But freedom comes to those who are poor in spirit. Here's why. You no longer have to make it happen on your own. Do you know the weight and the burden that you carry when it all depends upon you? That's a heavy load. When it all depends upon you, when it's all weighing on your shoulders, that's a lot to bear. That's a burden so big that no one should have to feel like they're all alone. Like it's up to them to make it happen. Sure, there are some things that only you can do in your life and, and, and certain things that God's called you to do that, that you're fit for and you're fashioned for, but that's different than having to feel like it's all reliant upon you. There is freedom that comes to real people as they walk in real freedom to admit that they have needs too, that they have insecurities as well, that they have some times where they have doubted and they need someone to walk them through that valley. There are some dark valleys in this world. Can I get an amen? amen. There are some deep depths of life experience in this world. There are some times where we wonder, is the sun ever going to shine again? But the good news is this, it doesn't all depend upon you because freedom comes when we're poor in spirit. You know why? We can remove the mask. We can stop pretending. We've gotten very good at putting on a happy face, saying all the right words, putting on a smile. We are play acting. We are play acting. We're pretending. But Jesus said, that's not the blessed life. The blessed life, the godly life, is to be poor in spirit. And it all boils down to trust. Trusting in God brings true freedom. Romans 8 and 38 says this, for I am persuaded. Now listen to what Paul says. Neither death nor life. He starts out with death. Why? That's our biggest fear. This is going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen, and then I'm going to die. But he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. So there can be fears in life too, but he starts out with the first and biggest, death. Put that aside. Don't worry about that is what he's saying because neither angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, what's happening in your life right now, or things to come, borrowing troubles about things that might happen in the future. 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us, listen, from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What do we all need? We need love. That's what we need. And so Paul is saying this, there is a freedom that comes from releasing yourself, from having to do it yourself, from bearing all the weight yourself, from knowing all the answers, from being in every place, being everything to everybody, there is a freedom that comes when you shelf all that stuff and you rest simply in the love of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. See, being poor in spirit means that we have nothing to contribute to our right standing with God. Do you really feel that way? Do you really feel that way? You see, most of us don't feel that way because we have gifts, we have talents, we have abilities, we have ingenuity, we have resources, we have things that we can bring to the table. We have bargaining chips. But if you would go to a mission trip on, on a country that is, is truly abjectly poverty-stricken and poor, you will see they don't come with all those pretenses because they don't have multiple changes of clothes. They don't have money in the bank. They're lucky to have a shanty shed with a, 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 a piece of carpet on the ground with dirt floor. They have nothing to bring. And yet I have experienced that those are some of the most happy and joyful people I've ever been around. They realize that they have nothing to offer. But see, we have bargaining chips with God. We have something to bring. I wonder what would happen in the American church if we would truly recognize our spiritual poverty. If we would truly come to God without all of our pretense, without all of the blessings which he's already blessed us with and lay ourselves as a sacrifice before him. Well, the Laodicean church, they had an experience with that through a direct confrontation from the words of Jesus. Revelation 3 and 17, I'm gonna read it to you. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't even realize, listen what Jesus said, you are wretched and miserable and poor. Poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be ashamed of your nakedness and ointment for your eyes that you may be able to see. They had eyes, but they couldn't even see. I correct and discipline everyone that I love. I want you to see that part. Here's the words of Jesus. I correct and discipline everyone that I love. If it has been a while since you have had a check in your spirit, if it's been some time since you have felt corrected by the spirit of God, then I would say to you, you need to get to a place of prayer. You need to get to an old fashioned altar. You need to hold on to God and say, Lord, correct me because he chastens those whom he loves. It's not a terrible thing. It's a loving thing. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock, and if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and I will share a meal together with you as friends. So those who are victorious will sit on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat on my father's throne. Anyone who has ears to hear, they must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches.
Now this was written to the Laodicean church, but we could also apply it to us. We could also say, Lord, there are things in my life that I have so highly apprised and valued that I have actually placed them between me and my relationship to you. I think that I have all these things worked out. And Jesus said, actually, you don't even know it, but you're wretched, you're poor, you're naked. And so those who come to God with richness, with ability, they haven't got to the end of their self yet. And what they need to do is come with an open hand. I wonder today, have you trusted Jesus with your life? Have you come to God opening your hand with a posture of receiving, an expectation that he is good and that he desires to give good gifts to his children? With heads bowed and no one looking around, I wanna pray for us. Lord, we wanna be like you. You are forming us into Christ-likeness every single day. Help us to become poor in spirit, to recognize our spiritual depravity, that we have nothing to bring, we have nothing to offer, we have nothing to merit your favor. Help us to realize that you wanna pour into us your oil and wine. You want to give us that ointment so that our eyes can see. And for anyone who has never trusted you in the first place, my prayer is that they would do that today. This would be the day of turning, the day of trust in Jesus' name.